Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, please open up to 1 Peter chapter 5. We are going to be looking at verses 8 through 10. The last time that I was with you, we looked at a portion of verse 8, but we didn't look at the first two commands, be sober-minded and be watchful, at the beginning of verse 8, and then I want to look at 9 and 10. And so I'll begin reading for us in verse 1 of chapter 5. If you'll follow along with me in your Bibles, remembering that this is the word of the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the slanderer, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And concluding with verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And this is the reading of the word of the Lord. Well, by way of introduction this week, I want to briefly look back over the text from two weeks ago. As I said, you'll remember in verse 8, Peter gives warning of our adversary, whom modern Christians refer to as the devil, a name which I think Satan loves, since it has no real meaning and helps to conceal his main attack strategy. The inspired writer doesn't conceal the enemy's game plan, however, calling him the slanderer. That's literally his name, the slanderer. This is his weapon of choice for devouring and scattering the sheep. You remember I mentioned he slanders us to God, he slanders God to us, he slanders us to one another, and he slanders us to ourselves. So I recommend that whenever you read in the New Testament the name devil, you should autocorrect in your mind with the name slanderer. 
This is a powerful truth, beloved. Many of you shared with me how often the enemy gets hold of you and gets you stewing over another brother or sister, or how he slanders God and his faithfulness to you, or how you get caught up in his lies of your own fallenness. On the way home from church two weeks ago, Tammy told me that it wouldn't bother her at all to hear a warning about the slanderer once a year or more, and I agree with her. Satan is more active in our day than we give him credit for. Don't hear me saying that every slanderous thought that passes through your mind is his fault. We still have our own flesh that contributes to the chaos. But Peter's language of prowling means that he is active, that he desires to devour. That means that he can inflict tremendous pain on the sheep of Jesus Christ. So what do we do? How do we respond? Well, Peter gives us three imperatives, three commands from the throne of God himself for how we are to fight the devil. You might think of these as our attack strategy for the enemy, the slanderer. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful in verse 8. And then in verse 9, he says, resist him firm." In the faith. Now that we've taken some time to get to know our enemy, let's talk strategies for war. You should know that data doesn't equal deliverance. We need more than just intelligence on our enemy. David says, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle, in Psalm 144, verse 1. Well, this is exactly what God is doing for us here in 1 Peter chapter 5. In verses 8 and 9, he is giving the churches of the early church three commands for dealing with the devil. Now, I want to be clear about this. These are commands. They are imperatives. That's not what I think you should do. Um, This is required by God. These aren't suggestions. We're instructed by our Father in heaven to deal with the enemy of our souls in three specific ways. And again, here they are in order of appearance. Sobriety, watchfulness, and resistance. Let's take each in turn. First, sobriety. This is the third time that Peter has used the Greek verb napho. In chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Therefore, with your minds ready for action... Be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Recently, in chapter 4, we read, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer or for the sake of your prayers. He's talking here about a state of mind. When he says, be sober-minded... Be sober, he means that his churches should be on the alert. And that's a mental faculty. Several weeks ago, I mentioned a connection between anxiety and drunkenness. How people run from their problems by deadening their minds. Well, you know how people lose sobriety. Alcohol is probably the first thing that comes to your mind. You can imagine the persecuted church in Cappadocia having some members so fearful of losing their homes or jobs or families that they might run to the bottle. Peter gives a rather thorough explanation 
of his prohibition. He basically says, uh-uh, don't do that. You must stay sober-minded. He's not prohibiting drinking altogether, but instead drinking as a means from escaping our trials. The road to drunkenness, beloved, doesn't begin with a drink or even with multiple drinks in one sitting. It begins with the elusive necessity to have to have a drink. Imagine the man who comes home every day and he never gets drunk, but at dinner time he's always got to have a beer. That's where the road to drunkenness begins. It's the road to drunkenness with many different kinds of sins, not with an excess immediately of the sin, but with a necessity to have to have a certain thing that God called good on a regular, consistent, and unbroken basis. We rationalize this kind of thing, I have to have a drink, for example, for all kinds of dumb reasons. Mark Twain once says, uh, once said, I always take scotch whiskey at night as a preventative of toothache. I've never had a toothache, and what is more, I never intend to. Well, you see his reasoning there. What a, what a foolish statement. It's a pretty tongue-in-cheek thing, um, but any man who tries to live by this sort of paradigm is going to find himself in trouble and pretty soon. Another reason we lose our sobriety, of course, in our day and age is through drug use. In verse 8, Peter says, be sober-minded. He prohibits explicitly any form of opioids. Yes, they had opioids back then, and they were often used in witchcraft. I've mentioned before that the Greek word for sorcery is pharmakia. That's where we get our word pharmacy from. The point of modern drug use is to get high. That is the point. And if you're high, then you cannot be sober. Yes, God created marijuana, and it is sure to have dozens of powerful medicinal uses. But going on a reefer ride is not one of them. Ambrose Bierce once wrote a satirical commentary on the dictionary called The Devil's Dictionary. Imagine Screwtape writing his own dictionary. You can imagine something like this. His entry for the word Christian reads, One who follows the teachings of Christ insofar as they are not inconsistent with a life of sin. Well, drug use of any form in order to get high is off the table for Christians, as is alcohol in order to lose sobriety. But I want to mention one more, and that's entertainment. Think of amusement for just a minute. The word muse means to think about something. So, to be amused means to be without thought. There's nothing wrong with entertainment, so to speak. Solomon said that there is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This is, I saw also, from the hand of God, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 24. But with all the advancements in technology and industry, we have been given generous margin in our calendar, so much so that we have time to spare. The flesh craves leisure to a fault. 
Entertainment could be the greatest threat to sobriety that the Western church today faces. There may be threats to our sobriety other than these three, but let me ask you this. What most frequently takes your attention away from the greater mission of the kingdom of Jesus? When do you most often find yourself getting set up by the devil? Pray about that. Ask God for wisdom here. There is no reason for the members of the body of Christ bought with his blood and set free from the domain of darkness to get in a daze and devoured week after week. Well, let's look at the next command that we're given in verse 8. Watchfulness. Peter commands watchfulness. He says, be watchful in the ESV translation. This verb is most often found in the New New Testament referring to eschatological vigilance. When you see stay awake or keep watch in the New Testament, it is usually referring to the end game, that moment when Christ will return. So it makes sense that Peter would command it to his churches, be watchful. They know that the pathway to exaltation, you know, from verse 6, God will exalt you in due time, is a lot like one of the Jurassic Park movies after the dinosaurs get loose. It's rather dangerous. We can expect Peter's churches to be watchful in the sense that their heads are on a swivel. They're not anxious, but they are paying attention to what's going on around them. They are careful of what they say to whom and careful not to use other members' names and such. We're going to have to start doing that when we refer to Chad and Lisa B. Maybe we could call them Brad and Bonquiqui. I don't know. What he, Peter, likely is calling the churches to is vigilance in prayer. Paul told the Colossian church, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. That's from Colossians 4.2. Peter's churches are suffering on earth, but there is a war going on in the unseen realm. They have weapons not of this world, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Beloved, you must pray. It's time for the church of Jesus Christ to stop giving the excuse I just don't have time to pray. You make time for breathing. If you're going to know what the enemy is up to and be ready for it, you have got to get close to the Lord and Master who beat Satan and cast him out. You have got to get close to Christ in prayer. I can anticipate the slanderer attacking you right now. You have a horrible prayer life. You never pray enough. Shoot, you don't even like praying. Are you even a Christian? Brothers and sisters, please don't buy what he's selling. He's already gotten whooped by Jesus one time, and now he's in the queue for the bottomless pit. But he'll snag all those Christians who are too confident to get on their knees and seek God in prayer. Now, I'm not a professional at prayer by any stretch of the imagination, but here's what some people might call a pro tip. When I pray, I try to keep a notepad next to me so that not if... But when I get a thought that needs my attention, I write it down and I jump right back into prayer. This takes practice. You're going to have to do it again and again and again. But it is an easy way to minimize distractions when you go to pray and seek the Lord. Well, let's look at the last of these three commands that were given 
the command that's active on our part. We're to be sober-minded, we're to be watchful, but actively we're to be resisting the devil. And I want to spend some time on this one this morning. People who stay sober will be inclined to keep watch, and those that keep watch will be ready to resist. You can see how these three build on each other. Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith. The Greek word anthistomai implies active, determined opposition, usually through some kind of confrontation. For example, in Galatians 2.11, Paul opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned. He got up in the middle of the fellowship meal, walked over to Peter and said, no, you're not going to do that, breaking off your fellowship with the Gentiles to go sit with the Jews. James gives the same advice in his epistle. In James, he says, resist the slanderer and he will flee from you. So the Bible commands Christians to flee several things. It commands us to flee persecution, sexual immorality, youthful desires, idolatry, so on and so forth. But nowhere are Christians commanded to flee from the devil. Peter commanded his covenant members to resist him, to oppose him. This is why sobriety and watchfulness are so important. Since the time of the writing of the New Testament, there has been a stand-your-ground law written into the Christian's code of conduct when facing satanic attack. That may sound intimidating to some of you. Chris, you don't even know how often I fail at this. I'm pathetic. I'm terrible. I listen to the devil all the time. I'm pretty confident that with Peter's instructions here, his churches would have had far less trepidation and anxiousness and fear confronting our adversary than we do today. And you ask, well, how do you know that, Chris? I learned something this last week at the conference that we were at that beforehand I had never seen in the scriptures before. And it is so plain as day, but my Western bias and the limitations of the English language has prevented me from seeing and reading it the way the early church would have. Let me share it with you this morning. So this last week, I had the privilege with Jeremy and Chad and Lisa of attending the GSI orientation in Sarasota, Florida. Among the speakers there was a brother named David Brune, who is one of the only men in the world to have translated the entire Bible, all of the Old Testament and New Testament, into the language of a previously unreached people group. In describing to us the difficulties of translating the scriptures into a language that doesn't have Latin roots, he made mention of some of the limitations of the English language in communicating ancient Hebrew and Greek. At one point, he asked us a strange question. Whom did Satan demand to have that he might sift as wheat? Well, I just preached on this last week. I think I know the answer. Pick me. I know. I know. When I, in unison with several others in the group, responded, Peter, of course, Mr. Brune almost shouted, you're wrong. 
He went on to explain that in English, there's no way to distinguish between a singular second person you and a plural second person, what we in the South call y'all or you all. Let me read Luke 22 verses 31 to 32 precisely in the original Greek. It says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have y'all, plural, that he might sift y'all like wheat. But I have prayed for you, singular, that your faith may not fail. And when you, Peter, singular, have turned again, strengthen your brothers, y'all, these men. Now that makes a lot more sense of the text. There was a satanic campaign planned against all the disciples of Jesus. But Jesus had prayed individually for Peter so that after he repented, he could get the gang going again. Now, what does that have to do with 1 Peter chapter 5? Peter commanded his churches to fight Satan corporately, not merely as individuals. Starting in verse 8, y'all's adversary, plural, not just your adversary, thinking singular, but y'all's adversary, the slanderer, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by, again, plural, y'all's brotherhood around the world. The church is commanded by Christ to resist the devil together. American Christians think in almost exclusively singular terms. We are hyper-individualists. But Peter tells his churches that they can't win this fight alone. They need the church. And I believe perhaps the main reason Satan has had a field day with Christians in the West for the better part of 50 years is because we have lost a love for the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus prayed that we might be a flock of one, but we prefer, or excuse me, Jesus prayed that we might be one flock, but we prefer to be a flock of one. All of the covenant graces of God flow to us through the church, but we have convinced ourselves that they flow to the church from us. I've had so many people come to the church and say, how am I going to be able to serve the church? And I asked them, have you considered whether or not God's brought you here so that maybe for a time the church serves you? How can the church use its gifts to help you? You're not just here to serve us. We're here to serve you. This places us apart from the flock, off alone, ripe for the picking. If we read these commands of Peter, we take them and we apply them to our individual faith in Christ, bifurcated from the faith that was once for all delivered to y'all, all the saints. Pastor Tim Bailey says, Alone, every man is picked off by Satan and devoured. To have our great shepherd's protection, we must stay near him and his sheepfold. The church, alone, 
we are helpless. He goes on to say, because Jesus gave himself up for the church, no individual ever has safety outside of the church. I ask you, beloved at Christ the King, do you love the church? Our survival in this battle against the slanderer is a corporate one, and we can only expect to conquer as a unified group. Christ the King is structured the way that we are, communally, all the time, together, families, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, in fellowship with one another. We're structured this way on purpose. Everything about Sunday mornings and the prayer meetings and the weekly evangelism and the get-together in each other's homes is to foster the family of faith. This may be the most difficult task that we face at Christ the King for some years to come. How do we instill in Christians here in Anderson County a love of and devotion to the church of Jesus Christ. For most of us, church was, when we were younger, a Sunday activity, a box to check. Those who were really devoted were still raised to see going to church as duty or as God appeasement. Shuffling into a nice air-conditioned building with these other miscreants we'd rather not be around. In reality, when we gather as the family of God, we are coming home in the most eternal sense. Our fellowship is an ongoing celebration of the victory of King Jesus with the people that are now closest to us through the blood of Christ than our own earthly kin. Consider when Jesus was requested by the disciples that he step away from the crowds and he go outside to see his mother and his brothers. Consider this scenario for just a minute. They said, come, your mother and your brothers are outside and they're asking to speak with you. Now this would have been a perfect moment for the covenant family Jesus to say, well, of course, welcome them in. They're in my covenant household. They're in my covenant family. But he doesn't say that, does he? Instead, Jesus replies, well, who are my mother and my brothers? Who are my covenant family? Who are the people that I'm really in eternal covenant family relationship with? It's not myself as a Christian and those born in my household. It's those, Jesus says, who do the will of my Father in heaven. It's Christians. The most significant family that we have is the Christian church. Now, that's not to say that we ignore our own biological families. That's not to say that we give up on discipleship. We forsake them and we go serve the church because that's the real important thing. No, that's not at all what is said and what we're taught in the New Testament. But we prioritize rightly the church of Jesus Christ, particularly in this passage, in fighting the devil. If you were in Peter's churches, where you may have already been kicked out of your home, and you're now a kind of pariah in the society, the place of refuge and companionship was the church. There was no other option. 
You ever wonder why the slanderer whom Jesus bound still seems to rule in this world? I submit to you that it is because the church has ceased to be the church. Now, Peter adds one more element to our corporate resistance. He says, faith. Biblical faith, we are told in Hebrews, is a conviction about what we can't see. When you are in the heat of a fight against the slanders of the devil, you can't see the end of the lies that he's throwing at you. You feel like it's very real. You feel helpless against it, like you have no power to overcome the negative thoughts. How do you stand with the church by faith? We oppose him not only with a conviction that what he says is wrong, but that having resisted him again and again, he will lose patience and run along. Paul gives us the same defense in Ephesians 6, prescribing the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. We have to respond to Satan's slanders the same way God does in heaven when the enemy opposes the church. Not true, not true, not guilty, not guilty, or yes, I'm guilty, it's worse than you know, and Christ has taken it all away. Let me give you two points of application for resisting the devil. First off, give yourself to the local church. If you are dealing with depression or besetting sins or the slander of the enemy, you need the church. You need fellowship. You need the exhortations. You need rebukes. And if you don't repent after the rebukes, you need the discipline of the church. Quit keeping the bride of Jesus at arm's length. You need the support of the local church. Church, are you experiencing prolonged periods of sullenness? You need the prayers of your church. You still can't get over that attitude with your family. You need the accountability of the church. Beloved, you need the church like you need a weekly trip to Costco. Now, the second point of application is persevere with the church. This isn't going to be an overnight fix. You're going to get one wave of encouragement and more challenges are sure to follow. You will get one good rebuke and need three others. You will, brothers, be tempted to give up on the church, but don't give up on the church. Remember, God is going to sanctify you out of the nonsense that you're currently in. You may find more, but persevere with the church. Now moving on to the second part of verse 9, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers throughout the world. In the second half of verse 9, Peter offers a consolation to combat an anticipated slander that the church is likely to hear. You are the only one. He says, actually, the church throughout the world is experiencing or accomplishing the same kinds of sufferings. Some translations might read, the same sufferings are required of them. Consider the church in Pontus, riddled with beatings and hunger and unemployment, and maybe some martyrs at this point. What's Satan's lie likely to be to them? The Galatian church has it made, guys. You can't even imagine how green the grass is over there right now. 
They don't have any Roman opposition, and they are Torah buddies with the local synagogue. Nobody gets sick over there, and the apostles prefer that congregation to yours anyway. God has blessed their businesses, and the rich folks give away tons of money to the poor folks in order to deny their privilege. Oh, and that Cappadocian church? Don't even get me started on how good they have it. What's Peter saying here? Don't believe the lie that you are the only one. Though he speaks here of persecutions, which Satan could also be behind, though we are not explicitly told that our adversary is going to use this tactic on you all the time, we know that it is the case. We know that he is going to pull this one again and again and again. Do you see how joyful these people are each week? You're a good pretender, but I know you don't act this way at home. They can't help you because they are joyful parents. They wouldn't understand you. When's the last time your husband told you that you're pretty? Look at all these couples. Their marriages are so happy. These girls don't go a day without their husbands complimenting them. Look, they sit together. They hold hands together. Did you see that guy kiss his wife in public? Your husband isn't attracted to you. You should probably put on some more makeup. Nobody else in this church shouts at their wife. That's right. God did give you a lemon, and they wouldn't understand how bad she is anyway. Life is so easy for them. Your parents are so mean to you. They get angry all the time. Doesn't the Bible say that that's a sin? Your friends here have it so easy. If only your parents were just like theirs. You're the only one who's bruised a child in a spanking. I know, he's a wild one. He deserved it anyway. All their kids are so well behaved. Have you seen how they sit at church? It's like they're a military family or something. If this church found out about your gay, lesbian, pedophilic thoughts, you'd get locked up so fast. It's so disgusting. Nobody else feels that way. What would Peter say to us, beloved? You already know Christ the King Every church is going through struggles just like yours. Don't believe the lies. Beloved, put out of your mind the idea that our church is the only one dealing with sickness or trouble finding space to meet or greater success in evangelism. Put out of your mind that we're the only ones dealing with the certain kinds of sin that our church is beset with. Forget it. We aren't the only ones. You aren't alone if you stay with the herd of God's sheep. And it's going to be a lot harder if you stay with the herd for the enemy to get to you. Now, I want to conclude with a brief summary of verses 10 through 11. Peter says to his suffering churches that the suffering is temporary. He says, after you have suffered a little while... It may not have felt like it's going to last. It may have felt like it's going to last forever, but God created a world that works and functions according to seasons. Fall and winter follow summer, but spring always comes. We might have this idea that the early church lived every moment of every day in suspense and fear, but beloved, we don't know that. God promised to deliver them. And what you're going through right now, Don't believe the lie that it will be prolonged indefinitely. What a blessed phrase Peter uses. A little while. That's a bit vague, but whatever you make of it, you can't say it will be a long while. Peter calls for duration 
endurance leading to deliverance. And where does that deliverance come from? The God of all grace. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above. To the Lord alone belong deliverances from death. Even this trial that the early church had to endure was grace. It led many of them to humility, which then leads them to more grace. Remember, he gives grace to the humble. What's more, God called them to his eternal glory in Christ. Beloved, what do we know for sure? That those whom he calls, he justifies. Those whom he justifies, he glorifies. The suffering of the early church, and ours as well, has the same off-ramp. It leads to the sharing in the glory of Christ himself. Peter says, in Christ, consider, Christian, your union with Jesus. You have nothing apart from him, and in him you cannot help but sharing in the very glory of God. The glory that Peter saw in the transfigured Christ on the mountain, that Shekinah glory of God, you now share in, in your suffering. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you, 1 Peter 4, 14. Thank you, Jesus. Peter has endured his, has ended his letter the way that he began it, marveling at the feet of Almighty God for his sovereign and saving grace. The four verbs he uses at the end of verse 10 are meant to be read collectively rather than individually. Like a compounded medicine, together they are a balm to both the bodies and souls of these early Christian readers. In a way, this is a petrine golden chain of redemption. God saves from beginning to end. Nothing can stop His power to save His people. And so he concludes by bursting out into doxology. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, he's not wishing for this. He's not even praying for this. He's rejoicing in this because it's a done deal. God will have dominion. Consider all the trials and sufferings these five churches went through to advance the kingdom of Jesus and what dominion God has taken in the last 2,000 years. Brothers and sisters, nothing is going to stop the advance of Christ's kingdom. Stay alert. Keep watch in prayer. Resist the devil, but don't ever stop rejoicing, for Jesus will inherit the nations.